specialist in Italian language, culture and travel. Dr Kathleen Olive leads Limelight Tours, which focuses on small group tours exploring fine arts, history and the performing arts, not only in Australia but also overseas. And one of the tours next year is going to visit uh, Turin or Torino, as the locals know it, and also it's going to Tuscany. And uh, Rita, um, I believe you really enjoyed chatting with Dr Olive. I did. The Tuscan tour is different from the Turin tour, by the way. It doesn't go to both places at once. OK, then you've got choices. I'm talking to Dr Kathleen Olive about touring Italy and very specifically touring Italy in a guided group. Kathleen, you've been doing this for a while. When was, what was the first group you took to Italy? The first group I took to Italy, Rita, was quite memorable. It was now, I think, over 15 years ago that I travelled with that group. And it was a combined group uh, of about 25 people. Half of them were university students studying Italian history. And the other half of them were interested parties, people who wanted to go along for the ride. So it was half a study tour. I was giving lectures in the hotel and at the end of the tour I had to mark all the essays so the students could get credit. Uh, And then the other half of the tour was the usual kind of group touring experience, making sure that people understood a bit of the context for the art and architecture and culture that they were encountering. So it was quite a memorable experience, that first tour that I had. And where did you go? We, in fact, we focused on Tuscany. So we had some time in Rome at the beginning and the end, because in those days, I mean, this is how long ago it was, Rome was really the only place you could fly into Italy from Australia. So we spent some time in Rome that kind of bookmarked the beginning and end of the tour. But we had uh, a week in Siena and then two weeks in Florence. So it was also a much longer tour than the kind of tours I take uh, today. That would what now? What were you? Well, I can imagine all sorts of things you would have done in Florence. Um, you were going to galleries, to gardens, wandering the streets. All of those things. We were going to history museums that are, I mean, still today, a little bit off the beaten track in terms of what people go to look at when they go to Tuscany. There was a, in those days in Florence, there was a wonderful museum called the Museum of the City as it was, and it had dioramas and old maps and models. Uh, And then we also did a lot of excursions as well. So we spent time in smaller Tuscan towns like Volterra, which I think fewer... Yeah, you visited? No, I haven't, but I have friends who were there as we speak. Oh, wonderful. That's a lovely synchronicity. (laughs) Well, I'm glad that they're there because fewer people really visit uh, smaller Tuscan towns like Volterra, but it was an ancient Etruscan capital. It has the second best Etruscan museum in all of Italy. It's famous for production of alabaster. It has, in my opinion, probably the best painting of the 16th century in, in certainly in all of Tuscany, if not all of Italy. So we we went off the beaten track and explored some of the smaller towns and we and we could because we had so much time. Yeah, which makes it very much easier. Now, you that first tour you did when you were um, a lecturer at uh, the University of Sydney. 
That's right. Yeah. So I was teaching in the um, I was teaching between the Department of History and the Department of Italian Studies. My own academic background is in Italian literature, so I was teaching Italian language and also the history of my own area of specialization, which is the Renaissance in Italy. And so those students were taking the history course and then the other half of the group were not students, they were just people who were interested in a real deep dive into the Middle Ages and Renaissance. That would have been fantastic. Now, since then, you've done many, many tours. Um, what's, What's the attraction of leading a tour? It's, I mean, there are a lot of things that are fabulous about leading a tour, you know, the food experiences, the people that you meet, That that's actually always one of the highlights for me is looking back on the groups I've travelled with and a lot of the kind of life experience and wisdom that I think I've gained from travelling with small groups of people, you get to know one another quite well. But I think for me, the true attraction of taking small group tours is You know, I love my um, area of expertise, which is Italian art, culture and history uh, more broadly. And although I love talking about those things in lectures and presentations, there's absolutely nothing that compares to being amongst those things, standing in front of, you know, a particular painting or sculpture, talking about architecture in the place where the building actually sits. Nothing for me beats the immediacy of being in those places and and conveying the context for those places while I'm actually there. That's right, because you can actually point to stones and mark. Kings on stones and say, look at this, this has its own story. You, you absolutely can, Risha, and I think also the, the kind of less tangible um, cultural impact that something like, you know, Italy is such a rich destination and we have a great culture of Italian food in Australia, but, you know, there's also things that you can only really understand about food cultures when you're in the place, when you see the landscape, when you feel the soil or, you know, uh, feel the change of the seasons, all of those things, I think, really the immediacy of, the, immediacy of them is so important to me. You're listening to reporter Rita Ehrlich in conversation with Dr Kathleen Olive of Limelight Arts Travel. Eating in Italy is its own skill (laughs) 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 because there are, uh, particularly around Tuscany and in Rome, any number of restaurants catering to tourists. And my my rule when uh, people say to me, where should I eat? I've always said to them, if the menu is in four languages, don't (laughs) go there. (laughs) <laughs> I feel the same way about gelato, Rito, when people say, you know, that gelato shop in Florence or Rome has 36 different flavours of it. Well, that's the one you don't want to get your gelato at. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right, except though we'll talk about gelato in a minute when we, when we talk about Turin. Um, you've been, it occurs to me, you've been travelling to Italy consistently over, what, about 15 years. Mm. Mm. What are the changes you've noticed? Look, they've been, they've been immense. I think in many ways, globalisation, it's changed all of us. In many ways, it, it, Italy has become, I think, more sophisticated, more internationalised, I suppose. And the flip side of that is, in some places, I think Italy has lost a little bit of the specificity that once drew us to particular cities or towns. 
Um, I think in economically in some ways over the time I've been going to Italy, uh, it's changed uh, for the worse. I think for people, um, my, you know, I'm middle-aged. I think for people my age and younger, Italy um, and being Italian has become ha- a harder road um, to, to walk in some ways. But as someone who's particularly involved with cultural travel, one of the big changes I've noticed in the time I've been taking groups to Italy is just how crowded some of those tourist hotspots have become. And so certainly tourism, I think, has really grown in um, ways that have had quite a negative impact on some Italian places. You know, Venice is obviously the most famous example, but uh, this year people are saying similar things about Florence, for example. So, yeah, it's changed a lot, I think, in the time that I've been travelling there. Do you think COVID's been a correction? No, unfortunately, I don't think it has, Rita. There was a lot of talk about that. And I think in some practical terms, COVID's allowed for a correction. You know, while museums were closed, they were able to do renovations. There are some building projects that have finally been finished that have been underway for almost the whole time I've been traveling to Italy with groups. So I think those kind of practical corrections were a possibility during COVID. But I think that... that, um, notion of revenge travel that people have been talking about that need that a lot of us have felt to kind of escape finally and return to some of those places we feel such a nostalgic affection for I think in some ways that's uh, led to certainly in the major tourist capitals of Italy there have been more visitors than ever before and the and the season as well um, is stretching so you know now in um, in Italy we're talking uh, together in mid mid-october and normally in Italy that would have been the low season hotel prices would drop crowds would empty out you'd have more of the the place to yourself and at the moment it's just as crowded as it's been uh, oh, throughout the the traditional high season now that that is interesting because I remember a few years ago being in Italy, we were in Tuscany, um, and the thing that struck me was that the season ended with a bang at the end of October, beginning of November, yep. that most of the restaurants closed. Yeah, absolutely, and the hotels would have, I mean, they still do, a specific date when they had to turn off the air conditioning for summer and were allowed to turn on the heating for winter. And those were the hotels that stayed open. You know, it also used to be the case that not only the restaurants closed, the hotels closed, the galleries went to their winter hours, archaeological sites would shut at about three. And what we're seeing now is that people are continuing to visit into what we once would have called the shoulder, you know, the end of the the high season. And so the season's just longer. That's right. It always puzzled me where people went, when you know, where restaurateurs went, when uh, they closed their restaurant for four five months. Did they go? Did they go to their own places in the country, or did they travel? I've never known. Did, did you know? Did you ever find out where they, where everyone went? There is a lot of travel, I think, for people who work in tourism and hospitality. When the when the season ended, you know, my friends, my friends, um, I have a lot of friends who are local guides. I know fewer restaurateurs, but certainly the local guides I know 
absolutely travel when their season ends. You know, January, they head south, for example. They come down to the Southern Hemisphere. They do a lot of personal travel as soon as the season ends and then a lot of administration as well, which I suspect is what the restaurateurs are doing as well as taking a bit of a break. I'm sure they're filing all of their financial paperwork and uh, doing a lot of the administration that the Italian state never makes easy. No, makes very, very complicated. Now, you've got a couple of tours coming up, and I'd like to talk about those. Now, what's your next one? My very next tour is, in fact, almost in some ways a return to my first tour that I was telling you about because uh, that first tour I took was in January uh, to Tuscany and in January of 2023 I'm going to Tuscany again. So I'm taking a small group to, we're staying in Luca, Siena and Florence over two weeks. Oh, how good. Luca is a beautiful, beautiful town. It really is, isn't it? it, It's just, and so is Siena, but Luca, and Luca, my memory of Luca is that it's not actually much of a tourist town. It gets visitors, but but not so many tourists. That's a good way to put it, visitors rather than tourists. I think that's very accurate for Luca. And then Siena, Siena's got its own wonderful attractions. Um, but Florence is the best known of those towns. That That's right, yes. So we, we spend a week in Florence uh, because it is the best known, and it's the best known for a reason. You know, it was the centre of a, a really strong cultural movement in, and rebirth, as we call the Renaissance in Italy, from about the 13th century to the 16th century. So it's better known for a reason. Uh, but I think we... we do those other towns a disservice when we forget the uh, the very unique and, and special histories that they had as well. So Siena, uh, for much of Florence's history, was just as important as Florence was, but it's been kind of subsumed into the history of Tuscany in general over the centuries. Uh, and that's a shame because the Sienese still pride themselves on being very, very distinct to the Florentines down the road. And, you know, their culture, their city, their art, even their local dialect, uh, their food, it is all still different from what you find in Florence so to stay there for four nights as we will um, the city kind of opens itself up to you in a different way to the way it does when you pass through uh, on a day trip. That's true one of the things that strikes me about Italy in particular is that within a very short distance your towns half an hour away from each other have a very distinct identity and often their own eating patterns their own drinking patterns it's something we find very strange in Australia where we have to travel long distances before we find big differences or even small or even small differences or even small differences yeah I think it's one of the things that draws uh, Australians back to Italy again and again Italy is the um, the most the highest destination on Australians list post COVID and I think even though many of us who've traveled overseas have already been uh, to Italy I think the thing that takes us back there is that real sense of cultural richness and that 
quilt of unique identities and cultures that you've described. It's It's got a long history in Italy's politics, but also in things as simple as geography, you know, the, the geography, the landscape, the very soil of Italy changes, the climate changes from the south to the north. It couldn't be more different one from the other and all of that in what is actually a really small land area. So I think a lot of that variation in landscape and in climate has also allowed for those variations in food and in wine but also in language kept it's kept people separate on you know different sides of the Apennines for example so yeah it's I think that uniqueness of the regions of Italy is one of its huge attractions certainly for me. I, it always occurred to me, looking at all these castles on hilltops and all the hilltop towns, that a lot of Italian history was, or and a lot of Italian town planning was designed to keep other people out. <laughs> <laughs> that that uh, you had towns built on t- hilltops so that they couldn't easily be invaded. Yeah, absolutely. Essentially from the breakdown of the Roman Empire in the 5th century to the middle of the 19th century when Italy unified, that small little piece of land hanging in the middle of the Mediterranean, it was fought over by national powers, local powers, global powers, the French, the Spanish, the Pope, everyone wanted a piece. And so Really, the history of Italy is exactly what you describe until the middle of the 19th century. It's a history of conflict and separation and alliances and defensive um, arrangements. And it's only since the middle of the 19th century that the whole country has, let's say, attempted to come together. And no, it together. has been notionally unified. <laughs> <laughs> it's now, an idea, really, the unification now, of Italy. When, when you were talking about uh, the French and the Italians and everyone having a piece of uh, trying to have a piece of Italy it made me think of Turin or Torino uh, in Italian which is where you're taking a trip next year Talk, I love Turin it's, it was one, it's been one of my favourite Italian cities but it hasn't till the Olympics um, the Winter Olympics, which was some time ago, uh, been a major tourist t- town for non-Italians. When are you going to Torino and how many people are coming with you? Well, I'm heading in May and I won't be taking more than 16 people. So the tour's half full and we've uh, we've still got some places left, but it'll be a small group. Uh, and we're spending just a week in uh, Turin but also uh, just to the north of Turin in a region that's called the Val d'Aosta. It's even more north in Italy than uh, the region of Piedmont, which Turin is in. And so we're spending a week between Aosta uh, in this region of Val d'Aosta and Turin. And it's a bit of an exploration, as you say, of this less uh, less visited part of, uh, of Italy. I think for international visitors, we don't know it as well. Italians know it very well, Italy. Uh, Turin within Italy, it has a reputation as a centre of industrialisation in the 20th century, uh, of fantastic collections of art and antiquities, and of course it's probably best known in Italy uh, in, in, two, in two ways, as the first capital of unified Italy, but also as the, the capital of uh, gastronomy in Italy as well. So it's in some ways I think it's great that Turin has been less discovered 
by international visitors because it does mean when you visit you do still have a sense of discovery you do still have a sense that the city is unfolding before you and that you're you're discovering something that hasn't yet been uh, found by the hordes so it is a very pleasant place to visit i think it's also my in my memory one of the few cities or Turin is one of the few cities in which it's very difficult to get lost because it's <laughs> built on a grid system a bit, like, <laughs> a bit like Melbourne and so it, it it's very unusual for Italian cities to be to be built with long straight roads at right angles to each other but these fabulous fabulous um, buildings and I think the architects Yuvara and someone else were both worked at Versailles so for me uh, the first time I went there I thought this is a cross between Versailles and Manhattan (laughs) (laughs) that's a great that's a great metaphor I think it doesn't for me it doesn't feel Italian in the same way as other cities do. It feels much more European. It's very uh, to the north of Italy. It's closer, it's more historically tied to France, for example, than it is to Rome. Uh, So it does have a a really different kind of feel and those wide boulevards that you've described and the fabulous arcades that mean you can get around the city in the middle of winter uh, without, you know, getting snow on your head. It does give the city a really different feel. It's also got some of the most unexpected museums. Uh, It's got the Cinema Museum, and the Egyptian Museum, which is second, I think, only to the one in Cairo. That's that's right. I mean, those two museums that you've mentioned are considered to be among the two most important museums in all of Italy. They're also two of the more uh, recently modernised museums in Italy. The Egyptian Museum was completely overhauled about five years ago. And so both of those museums, you know, you find lots and lots of explanations in English. There are multimedia things for you to look at. There are cafes and good gift shops, all of the things that we expect when we travel uh, to large cities, but which Italy's museums, let's be honest, don't often provide. So I think um, the Cinema Museum is just a fabulous destination. It's in such a really interesting building as well, the Mole Antonelliana, as it's called. It's the most distinctive part of Turin's skyline, an extraordinary 19th century tower that was designed uh, as, in fact, a synagogue for the substantial Jewish population of Turin. So the Cinema Museum is an absolute delight, but the Egyptian Museum is mind-blowing, and it, it is the second most important collection of Egyptian antiquities outside of Egypt. <laughs> I know, which is surprising, and we have to thank, or not thank, Napoleon for that, I gather. Um, the the other interesting thing in all of this, and this is why I love Turin, it is a great food city with mm. some extraordinary cafes. Mm, yeah, in fact, I, I think that cafe culture of Turin is another thing for me that feels quite European with those boulevards, with the arcades. It's really possible to sit outside in a cafe and feel like you're in any grand European city. It doesn't have the same sense of sitting in, you know, a terracotta brick-lined piazza in Florence or Rome, for example. So that intellectual 
culture that grows up in a, a place that has so many cafes is also something that's really distinguished Turin over the, the 20th century. The, 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 and, and Alter's discussion is fueled by coffee and <laughs> the drink called bicherin, oh. which <laughs> which is my favorite yeah it's a for, the, for, for those who don't know it it's a combination of uh, coffee chocolate really dense dark chocolate and usually hot milk um, and I had planned when we were there to do a cafe crawl trying bicherin what also known as marocchino what I discovered is that the effects of the caffeine <laughs> are multiplied by the chocolate <laughs> and too many of them will have you awake for a week <laughs> I think I, I think I wouldn't be quite so ambitious Rita I think I would hedge simply to the, one of the oldest places that serves the bicherin, which is conveniently called Al Bicherin, so it's very hard <laughs> not to find it. And it's in a lovely small little square in the heart, um, the old, really old heart of the city of Turin. And it is death by <laughs> caffeine and chocolate. But I mean, you dip the biscuits into the cre- whipped cream on the top, and what could be better? Oh, well, we haven't got to the wines of Piedmont yet, <laughs> but we might have to leave those for another time. <laughs> Kathleen, thank you so much for talking with us for so long. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure. Thank you, Rita. Rita Ehrlich was speaking with Dr Kathleen Olive of Limelight Arts Travel. For more information, go to www.limelight-arts-travel.com.au. This is the Travel Writer Show on J Air 88 FM in Melbourne.